Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is Chapter 15 of Spielbogel, The Thirty Years' War and the Rise of Absolutism in Europe. Now, this chapter, um, probably as you can tell by how long this video is going to end up being, is pretty intense. And there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of events happening. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of complicated details and a lot of nuance uh, to this chapter. So this is probably going to end up being uh, quite a long episode, um, but all the more reason to make it, because it's obviously very important. And so, um, really the big part of this whole thing is absolutism. But first we have to get to absolutism in Europe and how it spreads. And how it spreads is going to be the Thirty Years' War. So let's get into that. So the Thirty Years' War starts um, its first phase, the Bohemian phase, in the Holy Roman Empire, a very Catholic extremist, or I guess a, a Christian nationalist, is able to um, become the leader of uh, the province of Bohemia, which is a very Protestant area. And so you have a leader who is very devoutly Catholic, has said a lot of extreme things about Protestants, um, working in an area that is overly Protestant, overly um, Calvinist. And so, obviously, the people don't take um, very much of a liking to this leader, and so they uh, defenestrate him, or throw him out of a window, and that begins the first defenestration of Prague. Note that I said first defenestration of Prague because there are multiple defenestrations of Prague, but that is a different story for a different time. Um, essentially, uh, you know, getting thrown out of a window doesn't look very good. And um, this starts up a civil war in the Holy Roman Empire between the Catholic League and the Protestant Union. And so the Catholic League is backed by Ferdinand, who is elected emperor, and asks um, help from the Catholic League to crush the Protestant Union. And so the Catholic League goes into Bohemia and crushes them at the Battle of White Mountain, I believe it's called. Um, and successfully is able to uh, take over Bohemia, um, basically siege Bohemia in such a bloody and brutal conflict. Um, and this evokes a lot of chaos and a lot of fear, both in the Holy Roman Empire and around Europe, that you have such a, um extreme Catholic uh, who is leading the Holy Roman Empire and who has proven that they're willing to use extreme violence against Protestants. And that brings us on to the second phase of the Thirty Years' War, the Danish phase. And the Danish phase is kicked off um, pretty much right after, due to the Protestant fears of uh, King Christian IV of Denmark. He invades the Holy Roman Empire, trying to um, sort of free the Calvinists or the Protestants in the area from um, all the danger, that the supposed danger, and likely very real danger that the Protestants were going to face um, due to such an extreme Catholic leader. Um, they, uh, at this point, the HRE is very, very divided um, between Protestant princes and Catholic princes, and that really starts a um, civil war across the entire country because it's very decentralized and the princes and the emperor are constantly in a power struggle which leads to um you know both sides being able to 
have enough power to um, decide their own fate, and that's why you have a lot of German princes uh, fearing uh, Emperor Ferdinand and siding with the Protestants. Um, but also, you have a lot of. They also don't have enough power to fully break away from the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so it's just it's just centralized enough um, to where it's able to stay as one country, at least for now. Also, at the same time during the Danish phase, Spain and the Netherlands begin fighting again. Um, there was a peace treaty where the Netherlands basically gained their independence, but Spain didn't officially recognize them. There was a peace treaty and a truce for 12 years. Those 12 years are over, and Spain and the Netherlands are fighting again. Spain, as I've talked about many times, is very Catholic. They continue to be uh, relatively Catholic for European standards even today. And so um, the Spain and the Netherlands fighting is once again a war between uh, Catholics and Calvinists. And um, having two major powers on uh, the, Protestant the Protestant side and the Catholic side is going to really spill this war uh, out into its third phase. The third phase being the Swedish phase. And the Swedish, fa the Swedish phase, which I'm going to have trouble pronouncing, <laughs> is um, where France and Sweden get involved. And this war becomes a lot less, uh, or a lot less religious, and a lot more political. And so France and Sweden get involved mainly to stop the Habsburgs' power, um, their growing power and influence, also the growing power and influence of Catholicism. Uh, but that's mainly more a, a fear of Sweden um, for them getting involved because France is Catholic. And so they uh, join mainly for the power, uh, the balance of power, like the Italian states during the Renaissance. Uh, this balance of power between France, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, you know other uh, other countries in Europe is kind of being broken at this point with the uh, outbreak of such a large European war. And so France gets involved to try and stop the HRE from expanding. And so. Um, what this basically means is that, uh, while France is getting involved, uh, mainly to, or like I said, mainly to, uh, preserve the balance of power and, you know, try and get the balance of power in their favor, um, they're not going to be taking such a big role in the third phase. Uh, that's going to go to Sweden, who is, uh, actually quite a powerful country at this point in time. At this point in time, Sweden is very powerful, um, and really takes a leading role during the third phase. And so Sweden, uh, basically controlling most of the, uh, the Baltic Sea, is able to uh, invade down uh, through northern Germany. They're able to take a lot of modern-day Poland, a lot of what would become Prussia at that point, um, and a lot of uh, major battles take place. The HRE loses a lot of them, um, and the HRE brings in Wolfenstein, uh, a major general at this point. They uh, bring him in, and he's able to basically massacre a bunch of people at, at uh, Magdeburg. Um, and this inspires a lot of Protestants in the HRE to finally pick the side of Sweden and France. And um, most importantly, Brandenburg and Saxony join the Swedish. And so the Swedish continue to advance, um, but eventually are stopped in the HRE, and uh, Wolfenstein is suspected of treason and assassinated. 
And so that leads us that leads us to the final phase of the Thirty Years' War, the French phase, or the French, or the Franco, the Franco-Swedish phase. My apologies. The Franco-Swedish phase essentially switches um, who is leading this war. Uh, it was originally the Swedish during the Swedish phase. Now it's France, and France is going to push uh, deep into the Holy Roman Empire and deep into uh, Spain. And what that basically means is that the HRE who had, I wouldn't say men losing, but they had certainly been uh, fighting a lot. I mean, it's a 30-year-long conflict and a 30-year-long basically civil unrest or civil uprising in some areas. Um, obviously, that's going to take a big toll both on the population, uh, the economy, and the political influence of a country. And what that basically means is after, you know, 25 years, 27 years of fighting, um, France is able to sweep through a lot of the country until eventually the Holy Roman Empire, and then Spain is able to... Uh, basically capitulate and fall under the um, fall under the pressure and so we get the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, the Treaty of Westphalia is very important um, as, in terms of like historical eras. It is the end of our first era uh, because it's I mean that important. You're gonna see typically an era will end with uh, a peace treaty. So this is the first peace treaty, the Peace Treaty of Westphalia. Um, it is mostly political, with a lot of transfers of uh, states. France gains uh, Alsace, which is going to trade hands, you know, like five times throughout European history. Uh, Sweden is able to gain a lot of land in northern Germany. Brandenburg gets new territories. Um, but most importantly, um, the German princes of the Holy Roman Empire are um, able to get a lot more independence and basically break free of this very decentralized government. And it just pushes them just over that hill to be able to essentially um, dis uh, I mean, disform the uh, HRE to the point where it's not really an entity anymore. Um, it is still technically speaking, a country of, you know, about 300 different states. Um, but those states have enough power where they can basically ignore the emperor and where there's not enough of a centralized government to force them to do anything. And what that's going to do is that's going to lead to a rise of two uh, European states coming out of this. Austria, who is eventually going to form Austria-Hungary, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Prussia, who is eventually um, going to unite the German states and form what we would know now as Germany. Of course, a very different Germany at that point, but, um, you know, 1870s Germany. <laughs> um, and so, with the, PD, uh, with the Treaty of Westphalia, a lot of also, a lot of, as I forgot to mention this, a lot of uh, conflicts and uh, just sort of uh, contentious areas of Europe had been solved. Uh, namely, the Netherlands is able to gain official recognition for being independent. And um, essentially, that leads us to our actual absolutism era. And so the reason absolutism is able to grow out of the Thirty Years' War is because 
Um, essentially, governments need a lot more power during war, and they're able to gain a lot more power over their people, not over the nobility. They're able, they actually lose power because they have to go to the nobility and try and convince them to fight their war or fund their war. Um, but they are able to gain a lot more power um, you know, during peace treaties, uh, during trying to settle these conflicts. And so what that means is absolutism, or this idea that monarchies have absolute power, typically that power was believed to come from God, is able to rise uh, very quickly in countries that won the war, them being uh, France, uh, the UK, and then uh, a country that didn't win the war would be Russia. Uh, not that they lost the war, but they just didn't fight the war. And what this basically means is that under uh, those three states, they're able to gain a lot more, or the, the, the nobility is able to gain a lot more power and eliminate the conflicts going on in the states. And so a good example of that would be King Louis Thirteenth and King Louis Fourteenth, who combined under Cardinal Richelieu and uh, you know, King Louis Thirteenth and King Louis Fourteenth are able to basically eliminate the power of the Huguenots. They're able to get the French uh, nobility under their thumb, mainly through spies and intimidation. Um, they're able to expand the powers of the king by moving the uh, basically political capital of France to Versailles, building a palace there keeping a lot of uh, the nobility in the palace, that would be King Louis XIV. They're able to, or he's basically able to move all the nobilities into his own house um, where he can keep an eye on them and where he can uh, basically, you know, make sure they're not trying to overthrow him and not trying to uh, exploit his policies or evade his policies. And so what this basically leads to is France being a very uh, powerful and very centralized government, with King Louis XIV essentially having absolute control over everybody, um, not really to the point of like a fascist leader, but to the point of, um, you know, having an unrecognized, or an unrecognized amount of power at this point, um, where they're able to basically do whatever they want without many consequences. And so this leads to um, a struggle between local and federal um, power, which obviously uh, King Louis XIV is able to win, but also a harsh religious policy. And with um, mainly some political maneuvering of the church, uh, the Huguenots or the French uh, Protestants lose a lot of power that they had gained in the Edict of Nantes, and um, a lot of Protestants are unfortunately killed, and a lot of Huguenots are killed in churches and uh, Protestant areas, and um, about 200,000 Protestants flee to England, the German states, or the Netherlands, and that influx is going to greatly impact all three of those countries, but we'll get to that a little later. Um, in addition to this, um, in addition to this, uh, absolutism is typically found with the centralization of two other very important things, taxes and military. And in both instances, 
the uh, monarchy is able to establish a more permanent basis for both of those things. A permanent standing army, which means that the king no longer has to go to the nobles and say, hey, can I have some money to raise a standing army? Uh, which means that they're able to eliminate that, uh, you know, weakness. And through taxation, they're able to establish um, more annual tax incomes. And they're able to, in a way, intimidate nobles to make sure they're paying their taxes and that they're uh, properly having their taxes collected at the or after every year. And so... Um, what we see in France coming out of the Thirty Years' War, with all this absolutism and this more centralized government, is basically a superpower of Europe. France is going to control a lot of the, um, I guess, dominant tides of Europe at this point. And essentially this class becomes basically, how long can France stay in power? Hint, hint, not that long. <laughs> um because the French Revolution is, while honestly quite far away, about 200 years away, uh, right around the corner. And um, from there, you get to Napoleon, and from there, you get to Waterloo. And um, at that point, France, it, I, I wouldn't say becomes sort of, you know, weak by any stretch of the imagination. France is still very powerful today, uh, but they definitely have their power reduced or challenged by other states like Russia, like England, Austria, Germany, um, and Italy to an extent at that point. Um, but speaking of Russia, let's talk about Russia. So uh, Russia at this point is, uh, I guess you would call a backward society if such a thing exists. It's a very conservative, very... Um, I guess, medieval society, if you would uh, compare it to medieval, um, I guess, like a medieval France or medieval Germany. Um, and so Russia basically is not a power in Europe, which is very weird to say, even today, obviously, Russia and their conflict in Ukraine. Russia's quite an influential player in the world stage. And so... Um, someone wants to change that, and that someone would be Peter the Great. And so Peter the Great wants to westernize Russia. He takes a few trips to um, Europe to try and learn. I mean, learn basically everything. He was a real Renaissance man of some interesting things, like dentistry and surgery, which really didn't go well, frankly. Um, I mean, for him it went great, but for, you know, people getting their teeth pulled and people having surgery, um, it went significantly less good. <laughs> um, but Peter the Great, he wants to uh, explore Europe and basically take back a lot of the traditions and a lot of the traditions established during the Renaissance and bring them back to Russia to establish um, a more centralized state. And so this rise of absolutism in France is also, is also reflected in Russia with its own Russian twist, because Russia has to play catch-up. And so Russia plays catch-up by basically flipping their whole society on its head. They begin their, the construction of their first like real navy, uh, which doesn't go great. Russia has never been much of a naval power, and um, but, you know, they try, so 
Good job, Russia. A little golf clap for them. Um, they also established, more importantly, a permanent army, which, like I said before, get uh, take or removes a lot of the weaknesses that kings would have when they needed to approach the nobility to try and raise an army during war. And so with a powerful army under uh, Peter the Great, he is able to um, basically have an entire, uh, I mean, a massive army under his control, which he uses um, multiple times. He declares war about four times during his um, during his reign. And one of the most important ones being his war with the Ottoman Empire. And that is going to be a big theme because Russia hates the Ottomans. I mean, pretty much everyone in Europe hates the Ottomans, but uh, Russia and Austria-Hungary really hate the Ottomans. And so um, Peter the Great starts that trend by declaring war on the Ottomans and um, capturing some ports along the uh, Black Sea. Um, in addition to this, Peter the Great adopts the first Russian book of manners. Uh, basically, long story short, he cuts people's beards off, which is a very funny picture um, to be painted. Um, also, pretty monumentally, he gives women more power. He removes tra traditional veils and uh, gives a lot more power to them through marriage basically allowing them to marry whoever they want. And um, he, uh, through his Western idealism, he brings back a lot of Western um, parties, which gives women a lot more power. Um, I know it's kind of stereotypical, but it gives women a lot more power and influence uh, when they're hosting parties at their states. Um, in addition to this, Peter also, like I said, he declares war four times. He declares war on Sweden. And with the backing of Poland and Denmark, Russia declares war on Sweden to try and gain some ports along the Baltics. But what doesn't go very well is uh, the Danish and Polish front. Uh, Sweden is able to push through both of those countries and defeat them very quickly. And at the same time, they're able to, at the Battle of Narva, uh, defeat the Russians in a very embarrassing defeat. And so Peter the Great, uh, ever the Renaissance man he is, uh, reorganizes his military and uh, at the Battle of, I believe, Poltava, if I'm saying that correctly, which I'm probably not, <laughs> um, he is able to uh, successfully beat the Swedish and um, establish a um, Russian power on the, on the Baltic Sea and is able to gain um, some ports on the Baltic Sea. Most importantly, he is going to establish uh, St. Petersburg, and he's going to establish, uh, I mean, St. Petersburg, if you know anything about Russian history and Russian influences, St. Petersburg is very, very important. It is the uh, social and political capital of Russia up until about, um, excuse me, up until about World War One. Uh, where eventually it gets moved to Moscow. Um, but even today, of course, uh, St. Petersburg is very important. Um, and so, yeah, he might use, you know, a few serfs, a few a thousand people die or so making the city, but, you know, he's an absolute leader. It's not like, you know, that really matters to anybody besides, you know, the 
thousands of people who died and anybody with some, uh, you know, basic set of morals, but it's Peter the Great. He doesn't have morals. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, some examples of limited monarchies and even some republics would be Poland. Poland is very decentralized throughout its history. Um, basically, the nobles are able to control a lot of the government, with even the nobles electing the king, which basically means, you know, the nobles can do whatever they want, because they're not going to elect a, a king who tries to put their power in check. And so the Polish government um, is basically run by the nobles, not the king. And that means that Polish becomes uh, really decentralized and um, is unable to centralize into this absolute monarchy um, like France or uh, Russia had. In addition to this, we get to perhaps the most complicated part of this whole chapter, which is the English Civil War. Um, the English Civil War is very difficult because names. Everybody's name is James or Charles. Okay, I don't know why. It's like, it's, it's the Louis of France. It sucks. But essentially, um, you know, King James and King or King James the First and King James the Second and King Charles the First and King Charles the Second. Not in that order, by the way, because why would we make things easy on ourselves? Um, <laughs> um, basically, all three of or all four of those kings uh, alienate the Parliament of England. Basically, view themselves as divine leaders, view themselves as potential absolute monarchies. Um, and don't really value Parliament. And Parliament responds by uh, hating them. Because if there's anything Parliament hates, it's not having power. And what that basically means is that it's time for a civil war. So Parliament raises an army, uh, mainly Oliver Cromwell. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention, it is the Puritans in the Parliament who are, are rising up and... Uh, really taking a full lead on this charge, mainly because they are the people who have the most to lose from a Anglican church, and the Anglican church being, you know, controlled by the king, you know, a clear conflict of interest between uh, the king and the Puritans in Parliament, and so both of them, uh, you know, are natural enemies, I suppose. And so, basically, what this means is that, uh, I mean, there's chaos, obviously. Every civil war has chaos. Um, but eventually, the king is captured in Scotland, brought back, and Oliver Cromwell um, basically has them killed. He chops their head off, which is, and I hate to say this, pretty French pretty French of uh, Great Britain to do that. Um, but anyway, you know, it's a pretty extremist thing to do, to kill your king. And so Oliver Cromwell establishes what is known today as the Rump Parliament and proclaims a British Commonwealth. And what what is attempted is a more free society, a more, uh, I guess... A lot of these reforms that happen at this time are 
uh, reflected in uh, the Constitution of the United States. Um, but a lot of the ideas don't really work out very well. And what essentially happens is that Parliament, you know, basically um, everybody who goes against Oliver Cromwell is killed, rounded up and killed, um, which leads to basically, you know, half a Parliament or a rump Parliament. Um, and so Oliver Cromwell kind of going uh, power hungry or kind of going mad or probably both um, abolishes the Parliament. Um, and creates a constitution of England, the only constitution of England, and uh, divides the country into 11 districts to be ruled by what is essentially a military governor. And so at this point, we switch from a rump parliament uh, run by Oliver Cromwell now to a military dictatorships, or major, military dictatorship. Um, and that doesn't really work out well for the people, because military dictatorships are unstable and corrupt. And that basically leads to Oliver Cromwell being very unpopular with the British government and with the British people. And ironically, he ends up uh, using more power than the king actually had before the Civil War. So uh, the anger of a king who did not respect parliament and who Parliament thought was using too much power, is replaced by Oliver Cromwell, a man who dissolves Parliament and who uses his power as a military dictator um, to uh, basically become an absolute ruler. Uh, quite ironic, and not the only time that's going to happen. Um, in many ways, the English Revolution is indeed a revolution, in that it is a big circle where they go from an absolute ruler trying to abolish Parliament, to an absolute ruler who abolishes Parliament. Um, and you're going to see that again in the French Revolution with uh, King Louis the Sixteenth getting thrown out, and an entire revolution back to another absolute ruler in Napoleon. And so all this chaos basically leads the British or the British people to just want a monarchy. And so a monarchy is restored, the Anglican Church is restored, and Charles II, I believe, is um, basically brought back into power. Or, I guess, brought into power, because he was never in power. Um, and essentially what this means is that the Parliament's restored, the King is restored, everything's back to normal. Yay, nothing changed at least at this point, because pretty much right away, people remember, oh yeah, it's still the king. And so um, Parliament passes a law, the Test Act, which only allows Anglicans to serve as leaders. And this is aimed at James II, who is a Catholic prince and the heir to the throne. And this deeply divides uh, British politics. It's going to create the Tory party and the Whig party, the Tories are still around today, which is honestly kind of crazy that a political party can last, you know, 400 years. Obviously, not with the same political ideology as they had 400 years ago. But um, the Tories support the king and uh, Catholicism, while the Whigs want to exclude James II from the throne and exclude him 
uh, basically from holding any power. Um, eventually, as most people do, uh, King Charles dies, and James II, who is in line for the throne, takes power, and basically ignoring Parliament's rule again, ignores the Test Act, becomes king, and starts appointing people who um, are not Anglican, who are Catholic. And Parliament doesn't like that, but Parliament also knows that the last time they revolted because a king was ignoring their power, it didn't go well. And so what that means is that Parliament can basically wait for King Charles II to die, and they'll have an Anglican back on the throne um, in a few years. But suddenly, James II has a son, <laughs> and the son is Catholic. And so Parliament, pretty fed up that their plan didn't work, invites William of Orange, the uh, leader of the Netherlands at this point, who is married to James? James's daughter, Mary, is invited to, I guess, air quotes, invade England. Um, and, you know, as anybody who is invited to overthrow the English government would do, uh, William of Orange accepts, invades England, pretty much, a, I'm going to say, peaceful revolution. It's not entirely peaceful because there is eventually fighting in Ireland and Scotland, but there's no bloodshed in England. Um, and so James II flees and abdicates the throne, basically, and William of Orange is uh, now the leader of the UK. This is known as the Glorious Revolution. Um, now, why would Parliament do this? Parliament does this to establish their Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights. And it establishes uh, kind of a lot. It basically is uh, Oliver Cromwell's uh, wish list of things he wanted to pass, but couldn't quite pass because uh, complicated British politics, basically. <laughs> um, and so it protects uh, the right to bear arms for Protestants only. Um, the right to vote for uh, people in Parliament, not the wider public, but um, Parliament is able or is guaranteed the right to vote. Uh, and it also adds protections uh, against the king and creates a stronger Parliament, a Parliament that can agree to meet when they want to meet, not when uh, the king wants to meet, wants them to meet. And it establishes that they will meet regularly, which means the king has even less power. And it establishes that the king cannot dissolve the parliament whenever they want to. Which, obviously, once again, establishes an even stronger British parliament. And with that, um, that is pretty much all I wanted to say. There's a few smaller pieces of like culture, of uh, you know Baroque art being thrown in here, and um, you know French theater getting thrown in, but it's not that important. And this episode is already nearly forty minutes long, um, and so I'm not going to sit here 
and waste your time talking about something that, I'm going to be honest, isn't on the test, probably. So, that is all I wanted to say, because it's 40 minutes long. So, I hope you learned, I mean, typically I say I hope you learned something new. I hope you learned a lot of new things, um, and I hope this episode was useful. Um, If you got this far in, thank you for watching the whole thing, and goodbye.